Today on Peace Talks Radio, the neuroscience of peacemaking. Two researchers who have studied the brain and behavior and tell us about advances that may transform conflict resolution on an individual and a global scale. We're not trying to solve conflict in the world. We're actually in some ways seeing we should promote conflict. But what we should be promoting is better ways to deal with it other than taking up the gun and the bomb, as so many of our people do. That's Mari Fitzstuff of Brandeis University. And we'll also hear from Emile Bruneau with MIT and the University of Pennsylvania. We might have no idea how open-minded we are about the other side's views. We might think that we're being open-minded when in in fact, um, we're listening to them and um, developing our own counter-arguments to what they're saying automatically, or we're discounting what they're saying out of hand. So what I'd really love to have is some kind of measure that approximates open-mindedness. The Neuroscience of Peacemaking, today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. So what is going on in the human brain that makes some people willing to pick up a weapon and fight for a cause? Why choose violence over nonviolence? Why be suspicious of some but not of others? What can brain science teach us to understand or perhaps have some influence on ourselves or others to promote nonviolent conflict resolution as opposed to violent conflict resolution? I'm Paul Ingalls. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or how we make peace with each other in our relationships, our families, our schools, workplaces, neighborhoods, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We also spotlight peacemakers throughout history, as well as the ones doing the peacemaking work today. And that could include our guests today, both scholars, researchers, and writers who've been looking into the questions that I posed at the top of the program. In a moment, we'll hear from Mari Fitzstuff, director of the International Master of Arts program in Coexistence and Conflict at Brandeis University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. First, though, a conversation with Emile Bruneau, visiting scholar with the Annenberg School for Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. He uses neuroimaging to better understand the often unconscious biases that drive conflict and to understand why employing empathy across divergent groups and divergent points of view is so difficult. He spoke with our Suzanne Kreider. Well, I'm getting that we are really similar in so many ways, but when I'm talking to someone who's a different political background or belief, even that little difference can make um, a huge conflict. Absolutely. I'm curious, like, if your research says there's anything we can do about those biases. Well, that's why I'm here. Uh, <laughs> I, my hope is that uh, that I can. Um, so here, here's a little bit of headway I've made. Um, I know, for example, that we have this tendency to feel more empathy for the in-group than the out-group, right, for your people than for their people. Um, empathy in itself is a really interesting process because – Um, As much as it can drive what we call pro-sociality, it can drive you to to help and be kind to others. Once you include an in-group and an out-group, once you place us and them on top of empathy, now all of a sudden empathy can have completely different motivations because now empathy for your in-group can actually motivate you to harm other people. If you think that the in-group is being harmed by the out-group and you feel a lot of empathy for your in-group, 
and not much empathy for the outgroup, then it can motivate you to political violence. And this is one of the, I think, astonishing realizations about a lot of people who have tried to commit political violence. So these are suicide bombers whose suicide vest didn't go off or who were thwarted before they were able to do this or people who actually assassinated people from the other group. What you find is that they aren't sociopaths and and it actually makes sense that they're not, right? Why would a sociopath risk their own life for another person, right? Sociopaths, they don't care about other people, so they wouldn't be motivated to do that. Instead, they seem to be incredibly empathetic people, but their empathy is unequally distribu- distributed. So they, they have high empathy for their in-group, which motivates them to act on their behalf, and they have low empathy for the out-group, which removes the barrier for acting against them. So what I think of as this, this difference in empathy or the parochial distribution of empathy seems to be a key component of intergroup conflict. And so I've been looking at ways in which you can decrease parochial empathy. You can decrease the gap in empathy between in-group and out-group. And I think there are some very simple ways to do this. Right? One way is um, instead of informing people about something that happened to in-group and out-group members and, and getting their difference in empathy for in-group and out-group members. You can instead proceed that with a little bit of information about the people to humanize them. And that does indeed decrease this gap in empathy. But more interestingly, the type of information you provide them seems to matter. So specifically, if you provide them information about the other person's mind, their habits, their beliefs, even if they're not necessarily positive, that is particularly good at humanizing the other group and particularly good at decreasing this intergroup empathy gap or decreasing parochial empathy. And does empathy have something, Emil, to do with power? It seems like people who are in a higher level of power have less empathy. Yeah, there actually is a lot of research on, uh, first of all, empathy is is multifaceted. I think um, this is an important thing to realize. There are many different ways we think of empathy, and they're all completely legitimate, but all very, very different from each other. And I think one difference that I think is really interesting is the difference between empathy as personal distress. So you see somebody else suffering, and you just feel bad. You feel uncomfortable. Um, the reason why this is interesting is the easiest way to relieve personal distress is to leave, right, is to get out of that situation. This is contrasted with empathic concern, which is a feeling of concern for the other people. So instead of it being directed inward on yourself, it's directed outward on them. And the easiest way to ease empathic concern is actually to approach the other person. So here are two different types of empathy that have completely different predictions on what you would do if you're feeling it. Um, So when we think about increasing or decreasing empathy, I think it's equally important to figure out, well, what exactly are we trying to do? What type of empathy are we actually trying to increase? And I think um, this is important for conflict resolution programs because when they have in mind activities that are trying to foster empathy, um, I think it's important for them to know whether they're trying to foster distress at the other side suffering. You know, are you just trying to get them to squirm when they watch a video of the other side in a lot of pain? If they're trying to do that, that might actually cause the group to avoid the other group. It might not have the desired impact. Whereas if you are trying to foster empathic concern, then that's a very different outcome. And it might be a very different uh, program that initiates empathic concern versus personal distress. 
Well, I keep thinking about the people who were at the party in San Bernardino. This might not be fair, but when someone's about to shoot you, you can't really improve their your empathy or their empathy. You can't really stop them when they're already ready to commit an act of violence. Is there anything we can do to stop people from being violent in the moment? Well, I think that's probably the wrong time to implement conflict resolution interventions is when someone's holding a gun and about to shoot somebody. I think that you know, the work you do is far before that. The work you do is to try to decrease the psychological biases that drove the person to that state. And even more than that, I think one of the most fruitful places to employ conflict resolution uh, programs is actually with groups that have politically reconciled, but that still have a lot of animosity amongst them. So this is, for example, Sri Lanka now or Ireland, Northern Ireland now. I feel like the political reconciliation has gone on, but um, ironically, that's exactly when a lot of the peacebuilding groups seem to pull out. But I think that's when you need to do a lot of work. You need to lay the groundwork. You need to now decrease the biases that are no longer helpful at all so you, you can prevent any kind of flare-up of conflict in the future. You know, it's certainly arguable. I, I don't think uh, this is an accepted position, but my suspicion is that um, we might have things a little bit backwards and that we're, we're focused on implementing interventions in conflicts that are, uh, that are kind of um, ongoing and in the news while neglecting the ones that have a political reconciliation that aren't psychologically reconciled. Right. So we decrease the bias by looking at people's habits, humanizing them. Anything else we should do to really de decrease animosity? Well, I think that's a fundamental question is what kinds of things can we do? And also, I think importantly, what kinds of things are complementary? It may be that some types of interventions work through one mechanism. So you might be able to humanize another group. And you might be able to increase or decrease this parochial empathy people feel. So decrease the gap in empathy they feel for in-group and out-group. Those might be two completely separate mechanisms. You might be able to affect empathy without affecting dehumanization, affect dehumanization without affecting empathy. We're just not sure yet. If that's the case and if we find successful interventions for each of these, then we may be able to combine them. So this is uh, one approach that I'm really excited about. Another one is... Um, that some interventions obviously will be more effective for some individuals than others. And if we could identify which individuals might be most affected by specific interventions, then we might be able to kind of tailor make interventions to them or, or provide them basically with a menu and provide them with our idea of the best chance of success. And this is basically the principle behind personalized medicine. Right, that medical interventions don't work equally for all people. But if you could identify which intervention would work for a person, you might be able to um, be able to serve them better. And there's actually potentially a role for neuroimaging for this as well. It's it's been shown in some in some really uh, wonderful initial studies, uh, including uh, a great study by Emily Falk, my colleague at at the Annenberg School here here at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Um, she wanted to know if you could predict how a population would behave based on the brains of a small number of people. So the, the idea basically is um, if you take a focus group of people and you ask them um, which intervention do they think might be most effective, 
if they use their conscious brain to say which one is most intuitive, that might not be as good as interrogating their unconscious brain to see which one might be effective. So what they did is they had a, a number of smokers who had an intention to quit come into the lab, and they showed them three different anti-smoking campaign ads. So one of the ads is like the cartoon cigarettes um, trying to you know, give each other advice on how to get their human addicted to nicotine and went all the way to uh, a dark comedy where a woman is smoking alone in her room at night and she, in a fit, throws her cigarette out the window and then after a couple seconds pause, she jumps out the window after it, all the way to the totally depressing ad about um, the horrors of being addicted and, and the black lungs and everything. When they asked the smokers which one they thought would be most effective, they said that the, the black lung ad you know, the really hard-hitting one would be most effective at getting people to quit. She then put them in the scanner and had them watch these ads and looked at a specific part of the brain that we know codes for a person's mm -hmm. individual value of something. Even if you're totally unaware of it, you might value something more than another. And she found in their brains a completely different response. Their brains predicted that the cartoons would be most effective. She then got um, New Jersey to agree to play these ads and rotate them through, and there was a 1-800-QUIT number at the bottom of each ad. And what she found was that the call volume that came in was best predicted by their brains and not by their explicit responses. That is, they thought that the hard-hitting ad would be the most effective at getting people to call in and quit. That was actually the least effective. The most effective was the cartoon, the one they thought would be the least effective. So this has been done with um, health-based messages like the one I just described. It's also been done with uh, PTSD treatments. So right now, PTSD is treated either pharmacologically or behaviorally with cognitive behavioral therapy. But the effectiveness of each of these treatments is about 50%. So you're literally flipping a coin to determine which one you're going to put your patient through. But if you could get an idea of which one might be most effective for them, then you might up your chances of having a successful intervention. And they found that neuroimaging can give you some benefit here, that you can, uh, if you put them in the scanner and have them look at um, startling images, that it gives you a clue in which one of these interventions might be most effective for them. And finally, they found that it's also true with dyslexia interventions. Um, so there are a number of different ways to try to um, help people with dyslexia, and they found that when they gave people a battery of uh, survey measures to try to predict which one would be most effective, and they put them in the scanner, only the scanner measure predicted which interventions would be effective for which people. So I think there's a lot of room to apply this to conflict resolution. If we get to the place where we have a number of different intervention strategies, and we know that um, some are effective, at least for a subset of people, we might be able to identify which people will respond best to which interventions beforehand so that we can be very efficient about how we deploy them. Hmm. Well, how could we tell ahead of time who it's going to work for and who it isn't going to work for? Well, again, this is where neuroimaging could come in. Um, it might be so it might be as simple as um, people who are on the fence. Uh, or who are moderates respond best to this intervention, and people who are self-reported Republicans respond best to this intervention. But it might be that it, it isn't predicted by their self-report. It's instead predicted by their brains. Much more with Emile Bruneau later in our program and on our website, peacetalksradio.com. 
Mari Fitzduff from Brandeis University next as we continue with our program called The Neuroscience of Peacemaking on Peace Talks Radio. First, a short break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're talking to a couple of folks who've made a study of the human brain and behavior in an effort to understand why some people are moved to violent acts to resolve conflict. The idea is that the more we know about what's going on in the human brain, the more we can raise the awareness of ourselves and others and maybe tilt the scales a bit toward nonviolent conflict resolution. Our next guest is Mari Fitzduff, director of the International Master of Arts program in Coexistence and Conflict at Brandeis University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who told Suzanne that she doesn't feel her work is about reducing conflict. One of the mistakes we sometimes make is that we sometimes claim our field is about conflict resolution. It is not. Uh, There are conflicts in everyday life. There should be conflicts in everyday life. Much of the inequities that we have in our societies can only be managed by people actually conflicting against them, taking an advocacy stance against them. What we have is people um, who are committing violence and we want to try and persuade them to actually address the conflict in a different way. So it's quite reassuring. We're not trying to solve conflict in the world. We're actually in some ways seeing we should promote conflict. But what we should be promoting is better ways to deal with it other than taking up the gun and the bomb, as so many of our people do. And I was also struck by the fact that uh, truth seems to disappear out the window in situations of conflict. And facts matter very little. And it seems to be emotions that matter much, much more. But particularly I was struck when I did my own work some years ago on my doctorate when I was actually interviewing people who had been using violence to achieve political ends and who had now turned and were interested in dialogue as a way forward instead. And I was wondering why they changed. And the thing that struck me was that almost nobody had changed their mind because they changed their mind. Most of them had changed because they had experiences that had changed their emotions. And that led me then to look at the role of emotions and subsequently to the role of genes and hormones. And perhaps looking at do we have a legacy, perhaps from our evolutionary history, that actually in a sense restrains us in the same way that Freud would talk about the unconscious mind. I think I discovered that we also have an unconscious body and I began my research on that basis. What do you mean by an unconscious body? I think many of us have processes that are emotional, that can be induced by hormones, that are a legacy of genetics, that we're not very well aware of. One of the things that I'm interested in is, for instance, people when they are individuals are often very different to the way they are in crowds. 
For instance, some years ago, there were riots in the UK during the summer and the government decided to take a very hard stand on this. So there were hundreds of people who were brought to court and actually had to face up to the fact that they had been rioting. And what struck me was the number of uh, middle-aged uh, or middle-class students who normally would be um, very uh, contented, very rational, very hardworking, who said that they felt as if uh, some magic had taken over them. They couldn't understand what had happened to them, that they actually began to riot with everyone else. And there's a lot of evidence to show that riots in themselves, groups in themselves, they actually have an effect on our emotions. And very few of us are aware of this until we find ourselves in the middle of a riot. I've had such experiences myself when I've been in situations where I have seen people whom I have valued for the rationality lose control of that rationality when something happens that a group wants to act upon that is something that they're sympathetic to and different parts of themselves come out in that context and afterwards they really are surprised at what's happened to them. I I think one one of the, the... things that I understand now is how volatile we can be in terms, for instance, of our hormones. Um, When you have a group who are acting together, working cooperatively, they've got a goal that they share, um, you will often find that their oxytocin, their hormonal levels are high in oxytocin. And in fact, if you actually spray a group um, with the oxytocin hormone, they actually become much more tolerant of each other. They become much more cooperative. They take delight in each other's pleasures. They feel that they're bonded to the group. And this is simply because the hormones have changed. However, uh, that is only effective if the group that they're with are a group that they see as their group. If they have heightened oxytocin because, for instance, it could be on a rugby field or a battlefield, they feel they're fighting together, that same hormone can actually make them work much more negatively and act much more negatively towards a group that they see as the other, other than themselves. Talk about oxytocin because I think of it as a woman's hormone. Is it both in women and men? It's both in women and men. I think there is a level at which uh, women use it much more often in their daily lives. I think there is some evidence that men can be more competitive and their group uh, feelings can be much more narrow, as it were. But it is actually something that can prevail in any group, whether it's male or whether it's female. Uh, One of the things I'm also fascinated by is I, I have done a lot of mediation. I know a lot of the many international mediators around the world. And the stories they tell about why a peace process was successful is often about things that gave rise to higher oxytocin levels. So, Mm. for instance, if you are a mediator, you take great care that you provide good food, plenty of soft chairs, opportunities for people to share about their family. Um, I was particularly struck in South Africa by Cyril Ramaphosa and Ralph Mayer, who were two of the main mediators in taking people beyond apartheid in South Africa. And they talked about it all happened by mistake, where they had found themselves together. Um, They had had to spend some time together. They actually then began to share, bring out their family photos. And because their oxytocin level increased, they were therefore able to trust each other. Um, Just a few days in, in, in the making that trust because of the situation where it was uh, uh, the context changed in terms of their hormone levels. Now, that meant because that trust developed, they were actually able then to move on some of the very hard issues. And time and again, you hear these stories. People say it wasn't necessarily in the formal sessions. It was what happened outside the sessions. The other thing that we rarely talk about Mm. is that um, very often, if you can relax people, perhaps with a modicum of alcohol, if it's permitted within their context, you very often find it much easier that the mediation will flow much more easily because the defences are down. 
So the more you begin to understand um, the, the role of oxytocin, uh, the more you will learn how to facilitate its development when you're actually doing mediations. W one of the tensions that often happen in mediations, for instance, is that any experienced mediator will want to spend a lot of time outside of the room, outside of the formal talks. We'll want to provide experiences for people to experience each other in a different way. In Istanbul, for instance, you might want to take people to the hammam, the baths. In other situations, you might, particularly if there are women mediators, you might want to uh, allow some time for shopping. Uh, it, it, very often, mediators will try and fit in too much into, into particular sessions, find that they don't do as well as those who allow for a downtime, for opportunities for oxytocin to develop, but not just within the groups, but also between the groups. And this can be done in so many ways, which is why we often put a good deal of emphasis on good food, um, a hotel where you can relax in. And if possible, even, for instance, getting people to sing their songs or sing each other's songs, all of these sorts of things can actually help. That's great if you have like a group in a certain situation. But what if you have a couple individuals who are really violent, how can you get them to switch from violence to dialogue? If it happens, if the violence happens really quickly, what can you do? My own research showed that people were less likely to change because they read books or listened to rational arguments. They were actually more likely to change because of experiences that they had. Um, I think the issue of who uses violence is a fascinating one. Um, we mostly find that it's uh, young men, particularly, although though often they are guided and mentored and led by older men. Um, it is true some women join in. I think there's a different role they feel they have for themselves. I I'm very interested at the moment in those young men who've gone to join ISIS. Um, in many situations, some of these men are coming home again partly because they miss their home comforts, because it's a pretty austere context in the fighting zones, as it were, but also because some of them who went thinking they were fighting a Muslim cause find that they have to murder other men who are Muslim as well, and that contradiction is too much for them. Now, when these young men who have given up um, their, their years and maybe their possible lives to fight a cause come back, there's very different ways of dealing with them. For instance, in Denmark, we'll put a lot of emphasis on trying to reintegrate them into society, on finding other things for them to do and training them, finding them, helping them get jobs, helping them become socially connected. In the UK, I think the process is much more about putting these people in jail because they're seen as a threat. Now, there you can see very different ways of looking at people who have uh, uh, taken up the use of violence to fight a cause. One understands that it may well be that they were heroic in their own way, even if they fought it um, devastatingly, uh, tragically for many other people. The other is very much treating people as a criminal, as an aberration. In fact, we all have within us the capacity to be either a criminal or a hero. And we find that what actually defines um, whether people become such is very often their context. So, Mari Fizdov, it sounds like brains are really different. Like some people's brains like structure and safety and purity and other brains like risk taking. But you're also saying that maybe it's the context or it's over time. People can change. So I'm curious do people's brains really change? Like, some people like strength. Um, I'm wondering why some people kill and then other people don't kill. 
If you look at liberalism, uh, liberalism is more likely to flourish in many of our European countries. Um, like the Scandinavian countries are sort of famous for their, their, their liberalism. Um, and this seems to be a part of a history where they have managed their wars, they have managed themselves. But also it's part of a history where they have recognised that having a society that actually shares out the resources um, in a much more generous way is actually a safer society and a society in which they can relax much more. I'm very struck by the fact that um, it is almost impossible to get very, very rich in any of the Scandinavian countries. In other words, there aren't huge differences in people's houses because so much money on the part of Denmark, almost 80% of taxes plus can actually go back to the state for the state to provide um, a, a country where education is free, where old people are taken care of, where you have no health worries. So in a sense, that sort of having that sort of a country is a luxury. And that luxury, luxury does uh, tend to lend itself to people being more liberal because you don't have to be conservative. So I think the idea of um, we need to watch very carefully what we're offering in our societies to make people feel safe and that they belong. When we talk about people who um, move towards... Assuming that we're excluding psychopaths, which actually are very few and far between. And I have to tell you that um, there's no evidence that it is psychopaths who are doing much of the killing in the world. And don't forget, much of the killing in the world is done fairly cold-bloodedly by governments who are actually the main perpetrators of wars. In terms of those who would uh, choose outside of, uh, of government, outside of the legal processes to use violence... Very often it is logical for them to do this. Very often it is seen as a good thing for them to do this. They feel as passionately about it as somebody does who fights for the United States Army, who fights for the UK Army, etc. It is rational in their terms that they would use this, that is a weapon that is used by many governments in the world, to fight for their cause, to fight for their people against other people. So it really helps um, to understand that it's not just as complex as suddenly people overnight turn into killers and go out to uh, attack a particular group. One of the things that becomes very clear to you when you're working in this field is that we all of us should be aware that we are capable of doing things that are pretty awful. Um, I suspect that few of us have been in contexts where, for instance, our family was were threatened. If you had somebody coming towards you, as so many did in Rwanda, and your children were going to be murdered, what would you do in return? You would probably find in yourself that capacity for violence that you don't understand was there. On the other hand, in many Western developed societies, we've managed to order um, the, the, the sort of revenge that people might feel because wrongs have been done to them. There's a lot of evidence to show if there are good ways of actually dealing with uh, revenge, then in fact people won't go and take out their guns and shoot the people they are deeming responsible. So an awful lot of whether we're good or bad is not actually about whether we as people are good or bad, but whether we're lucky enough to have a context in which we can have our goodness flourish or in a very difficult situation where difficult and, and pretty negative aspects of ourselves can come to the fore. There's also, I think, something that uh, I understood from my own conversations with paramilitaries. Um, I, I think in, in Northern Ireland particularly, I found that there were three different reasons why young men took up violence. Um, one was very much looking at it as a historical role that they took up. Particularly within the Republican movement, many of the people who came to lead the movement were people whose histories had actually spoken to them of the violence that was needed to actually get the British out of, out of Ireland, where they'd been for almost a thousand years. 
The second level were those who uh, took up violence because they hadn't initially been committed to it, but something had happened in their lives. Either they had been, their cousin or their granny had been killed by the IRA, or uh, loyalists had actually murdered some children in their in their street. Or indeed, British soldiers had broken into their house in the middle of the night um, to people who were completely innocent of, of any connection with violence. And the third one was one that was very predominant, particularly in working class areas where many of the men were unemployed. In the first instance, they were actually uh, asked to just protect their community um, because at that stage there was a lot of sectarian violence. But very soon that protection often turned into actually active violence. But these were mostly men who had felt adrift, who had nothing in their lives. They had no work. They very often hadn't got a relationship or children. And they found that this was a way of being a hero, both to other young men in the community and to themselves. So I think if you understand why people um, take up, as it were, the gun, it begins to be much more complex than we sometimes see it. I've been very struck by the fact that certainly many of the people I have known who have taken up violence They're actually very moral in other ways. Um, In other words, they're not the psychopaths that we think them to be. They actually have a cause to which they've committed and committed themselves to use violence. But it does not mean that in another situation they would be violent men. And indeed, there's much research that actually shows this. It sounds like it's something about being a hero in the brain. But you can be a hero in lots of different ways. So how can we as listeners, how can the listeners out there try to elicit the hero in people, the good part of people? What can we do to build peace? If we are lucky, our children have ways in being heroes that are very productive. So very often within situations where uh, jobs are available, where going to a university is the norm, where people have lots of sports opportunities, um, where they can go and do, as it were, um, international service um, that is peaceful rather than violent, uh, you'll find that they're much less likely to try to be heroes in ways that actually uh, take up violence. So what, in certainly in when I have looked at people who've moved from violence, it's not because they've often given up on their cause, but they found a different way to pursue their cause. Often that was uh, through advocacy, sometimes it was through the law, sometimes it was through politics. But they, they haven't necessarily given up on their goal, they just find a better way to do their goal. In terms of the hero, where do you think the idea of using violence as a path to heroism comes from, both traditionally and in modern times? I suppose the easiest way to think about um, the use of violence by those who see themselves as heroes is actually just to look around us. Go to your village square, go to your town, go to your cities. Who are the people who are remembered in the statues? Who are the people who are remembered in the memorials? Unfortunately, we actually don't have that many heroes who are remembered for their value in terms of their peace-building capacities. The Gandhis, the Martin Luther Kings and the Mandelas are few and far between. It's actually quite difficult to find people who are deemed to be heroic and who actually have um, garnered for themselves a reputation so that they can be stimulating others to be as heroic as they are. Most of the time, in terms of the way we look at heroes, in terms of the way we look at our uh, TV games, our films, most of the time it is about the use of violence. I do wish that uh, we had a lot more heroes who were those who chose not to, who stood out against it. 
I was just looking recently at, uh, at the history of conscientious objectors. Conscientious objectors are people whom I would see in many cases are heroes. They have said it's wrong to do this to other countries. We have to find different ways to do it. But we're very much in a minority. The majority of people see strength as being the factor that's needed to protect them and their people and their families. And they see that strength exemplified in the weaponry that a country has. So I think we have to seriously think about uh, where the ideas of heroism come from. Why do people have an idea that it's more heroic to go out and fight for their country with a gun than to go to a medical school and learn how to deal with diseases and to save the lives of so many people? We actually give models in terms of the idea that, in fact, you are a hero if you will take up the gun or the drone or the bomb for your country. But, of course, those who do it for another country are seen as really problematic. They are not seen as good people. They're certainly not seen as heroes. So this term heroic very much depends. It's a bit like the term um, terrorist, which is such a problematic one. None of our folk are terrorists. Almost always the other sides are. And yet they may actually think they're fighting for some of the same values that we are. They're just fighting us as opposed to us fighting them. So, Mari, talk a little bit about Bonding versus bridging, okay? Because bonding happens in in-groups. Explain in-group too. And also bridging doesn't happen with out-groups. You know, the, one of the authors I, I respect a lot, a man called Green, has actually suggested that um, biologically human beings have actually evolved for cooperation, but only cooperation with some people. And this makes sense in terms of the numbers of tribes that we've had in our past history. Those tribes that bonded together to work together, to cooperate together, were those that survived. And it's really interesting to see the amount of work that is actually looking at cooperation as a human norm, as opposed to the selfish gene theory, which seemed to suggest that it was just ourselves and our families that we actually cared about. So within groups, um, bonding is is quite easy. Um, we see people who often look the same as us, who go to the temple or the mosque or the chapel like us. Uh, we know who their pre- pre- who their um, predecessors are, and we feel more comfortable with them. And therefore, it's much easier for us to bind with them. Now, that binding in itself can also become a prison. And if you've ever noticed, the quarrels within groups are often more bitter than the quarrels between groups. It's what we call the politics of small differences. Because if we're betrayed by people thinking differently within our group, it feels much more of a betrayal than something that is uh, said on behalf of those who are outside of our group. So if we accept that that bonding is hormonally driven, um, is probably genetically makes it easier for us to sort of cooperate with some people, not with others, the downside is that it also means we're always looking for the group that may be coming over the hill to get us the group who may prove to be an enemy, the group that we can't actually trust until we get to know a lot more about them. And getting to know about them is something we have to, our our judgment in terms of bonding has to be set aside. And this is obviously um, something that safeguards us as well. Just imagine if we were open to everyone. Just imagine that we had no fears. Our our amygdalas did not rise in terms of another group where we expected everybody to be friends. In the world that we live in, that actually would be quite a danger to our evolution. So we have to, we have to respect 
that this uh, this sense of ours of noting difference, whether it's difference of an individual, whether it's in colour or creed, uh, looking at differences in groups and how they wear things differently, how they speak differently, this is something that will probably not leave us. It seems to be very much part of our human nature. However, the more we get to know other groups, um, the more comfortable we feel with groups that are different. For instance, it's interesting that countries that have a lot of international trade with others that are used to seeing people who are different in their city and village streets are much less afraid of people who are the other. People who have no sense of people other than their own. Uh, people who have no sense that uh, other people have a moral uh, and a right to exist, uh, to get the goodies in terms of our societies. And they will tend to be much more defensive and much more alert in terms of, of other groups. So when you talk about the, when we talk about the bonding within groups, uh, it's critically important and it also can be a prison because it can prevent the bridging that is needed to, towards other groups in our very much globalising world. And leaders are so critical. So I come from Ireland. Um, 10% of the people who now live in Ireland were not born in Ireland. They are different in terms of creed, colour, language, etc. The big difference in terms of villages and towns that have been satisfied with integration, who have welcomed these people, has been the kind of leadership they have got. So if they have a mayor who stands up and says, this is great, this is the world coming to us, we can actually help these people and they can help us, then in fact you have a much more satisfied community. On the other hand, if you have leaders who try to provoke and say these are different and we've got, we've got to be careful of them and they're going to hurt our children, then in fact you can have a very, very unhappy community. But a lot of how and whether that happens depends on the leadership that is given in those situations, on whether people feel reassured that they can, as a society, manage these kinds of diversities, or whether, as a society, they're going to see them as a problem, and some people, therefore, might use violence in terms of them. More with Mari Fitstuff from Brandeis University in our complete interview with her, along with other article and website links on this topic at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. More in a moment. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com, with scores of programs on peacemaking. I'm Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider, on a program we've called The Neuroscience of Peacemaking, with two researchers who've done studies and written extensively on the topic. Back now to Suzanne's interview with Dr. Emile Bruneau. At the time of our interview, a visiting scholar at the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania, and also a researcher with MIT. 
Bruneau uses standard MRIs and functional MRIs to help him learn more about bias that can lead to conflict between people. He explains the difference between the two in an extended interview on our website, peacetalksradio.com. But right now to another part of his conversation with Suzanne Kreider. Emil, which kind of scans do you tend to do more of? Well, we always do a structural scan of the brain so you can... um, you can get an idea of uh, where all the person's uh, brain regions are. And then we do um, a functional scan, and we have them do different tasks so we can see how that person's brain is responding to those tasks. And since I'm particularly interested in, um, in bias and prejudice and conflict, I have people look at uh, or read uh, stimuli that will evoke some kind of response to another group. And the idea is to try to get at um, how they're processing information that is relevant to intergroup conflict. Because we're talking about peacemaking, what are the areas of the brain that relate to peace the most? That's what we're trying to work out right now. We have some very discrete regions in the brain Um, that we've been able to localize in past studies that we know are specifically tuned to what we call theory of mind. So that is um, thinking about what somebody else is thinking. And this, I think, is a a really key component of of the types of misunderstandings that are driving intergroup conflict. You might think that the other group has more nefarious intentions than they actually do, for example. So we're interested in examining what's going on, if we can get a, a, a measurable and usable signal there. But there are other regions uh, that we're just not sure of. So, for example, we've done recent research on dehumanization, so the tendency to think of another group as a little bit less evolved and civilized than your own. And that work is about trying to identify some regions that are responsible for this type of perception. Um, and since this perception also might be driving conflict, it might give us a hint on where in the brain to look um, in future interventions that are aimed at decreasing dehumanization towards the other group, for example. The goldmine for me would be, um, you know, I think the, the big power of neuroimaging and what gives it so much appeal to me is that we know that a lot of the biases that people hold towards other groups are unconscious. That is, we have a number of ways that we can, uh, that we can be prejudiced towards another group that we're aware of. Um, but there are a whole other set of processes that are going on in the brain that are completely unconscious and opaque to introspection. And this is just a biological reality. This is how the brain works. This is how it's organized. So the, the potential difficulty with those biases is that if we're totally unaware of them and we don't condone them, we're not even aware of them, then it's really hard to address them. It's really hard for us to um, consciously decrease our own bias if we're completely unaware of it. So what I'm hoping is that we can get some kind of measure of the types of biases that I think might be very unconscious in people. So this, for example, might be people's willingness to be open-minded about the other side's narratives about a conflict. We might have no idea how open-minded we are about the other side's views. We might think that we're being open-minded when, in fact, um, we're listening to them and um, developing our own counter-arguments to what they're saying automatically, or we're discounting what they're saying out of hand. So what I'd really love to have is some kind of measure that approximates open-mindedness 
because this is something that's just um, difficult or impossible to get at by asking people to self-report. It's really hard, though, to be aware of your biases because we always think, is that part of the brain, too? We think we're right and they're wrong? Well, it, it takes, um, again, I think it takes humility. Sometimes it's very easy to become aware of these biases. In fact, there's one really strong um, psychological process called stereotype threat. And this, uh, this phenomenon is really pervasive and it's really incredible and it's been demonstrated in so many different ways. And the idea is if you are at the losing end of a stereotype, that that affects how you behave in that situation. So um, the stereotype that women are not as good at math as men. Um, they've tested this in a mixed gla- class of uh, college students. They give them really hard math problems. And if they tell them beforehand that these math problems, how you do on this is diagnostic of your natural mathematical ability, then the men outscore the women on that test. But if they take an identical room again, men and women, and they say instead, so they give them the same exact test, but this time they say, these are just a series of games. The groups perform equally. And they perform equally because the women do much better. Right? They, they rise up to the men's score. And, and the explanation for this is that in the first case, women are aware of the stereotype that they're not as good at this task as men. And the awareness itself, the stereotype itself, impinges on their ability to perform. And so they perform less well. And this has been demonstrated in crazy situations. Like you take black and white athletes and you have them do a little mini golf task. And if you preface the task by saying this is a test of your natural athletic ability, then the black athletes outperform the white athletes. But if you proceed the same task by saying that this is, uh, this is a task that assesses your ability to make critical judgment in athletic situations, then the white athletes actually outperform the black athletes. And we don't know how many of the processes uh, are subject to this, but some of them, it seems it might be as simple as that, that if you become aware of it, um, you might no longer be uh, subject to it. We'll continue with that, with the stereotype threat, and create an example for us of peacemaking. So let's say there's two groups who are conflicting. So how could—you're saying we can be inoculated, we can be aware, but maybe we're not aware. Well, so that's an example of the potential, right? That is one specific bias, stereotype threat— that it has been demonstrated to be subject to change just by becoming aware of it. We don't know um, how, how many of these uh, unconscious biases that people hold are, are subject to the same inoculation. For example, we have a tendency to um, uncritically accept information that already supports the view that we hold, so in the context of conflict, to uncritically accept Uh, information that supports the view we already hold, but to hyper-scrutinize information that supports the other side. So this this is something called confirmation bias. I don't know yet whether teaching people about confirmation bias can actually help them rise above it. Um, but, But this is one of the things that I think we need to figure out. This is why I'm here to do this research. I want to know if this is the case. I want to know which biases are really driving conflict in real conflict situations, not just college students in a lab. And then I want to know which of these I can 
uh, surmount. I can get the people to surmount by making them aware of it. And if if it's not able to be surmountable by making them aware of it, are there other approaches that we can take that can help help people surmount these biases that are getting in the way of conflict resolution? Dr. Emile Bruneau, it makes me think about um, the unconscious behavior of nonviolence. Well, for some people, it's conscious. For other people, it's unconscious. I'm wondering if we can somehow encourage people to be nonviolent. Could that be fostered as a behavior? Well, we have an incredible amount of research on the unconscious effects of viewing violence and aggression. At um, So when kids view a lot of violence or engage in a lot of uh, virtual violence, like through video games, they tend to act more violently. And they might be completely unaware that they're being influenced in this way, uh, but you can show that they are. What we don't have are numerous examples in our media of people coming up with creative nonviolent uh, solutions to moments of conflict, maybe on Sesame Street. uh, But outside of that, it just doesn't happen. It's not part of our culture. I wonder what would happen if it was. If we were constantly exposed to creative nonviolent solutions, might we then spontaneously, unconsciously come up with our own nonviolent solutions when we come to times of conflict. I think that's entirely possible. Um, and I think it's, uh, uh, it's you know, sometimes uh, understandable, sometimes disheartening that, that we don't have uh, all these examples out there. And I would be really curious to see if this is true. I think that in general, nonviolent movements are incredibly conscious. They are an attempt to get beyond our, um, our maybe automatic responses. We know that humans are incredibly responsive automatically to fear. Um, Even if you um, get someone to think of their own mortality, it changes how they view other groups. They tend to think now more in terms of us and them. They tend to obey authority more. Um, They tend to be more xenophobic. Again, this can be a completely unconscious process. So we know that we have processes inside us that respond automatically to, to violent scenarios, to threatening scenarios. I don't think we have any knowledge of processes that automatically respond to nonviolence. Um, but again, that's why I'm really interested to see if we could give people some, uh, some automatic, uh, intuitive, unconscious processes that are informed more by nonviolence than by violence. Emil, some people see strength and competition as really good and collaboration is like really bad. I'm curious what you have to say about that and if anything can be done about that. Yeah, so this is this is a really interesting question to me and, and something that I deal with personally a lot. And this may be going a little bit more uh, biographical than than you had asked, but the reason I uh, this is this is such a conflict for me is that um, I grew up as a teacher, and I grew up um, reading the works of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, and I've grown up with uh, a fervent desire to to foster peace in the world. But I also grew up with a love of contact sports, <laughs> so I grew up wrestling and playing football, and I played rugby and in college, and I've done, you know, mixed martial arts and combat sports ever since. So to me, I've, I've gained a lot and a lot of appreciation for others 
through competition. And I think that the most dramatic example of this for me was um, when I was I was traveling around the world and I, I found myself in Mongolia and um, I, I knew that wrestling was the national sport of Mongolia. And so I, I asked the translator who was who was with me if she thought she could find somebody who would be willing to wrestle me. And and sh- she laughed at first and then, then she realized I was serious and, and she said, yeah, sure. And and sure enough, on, on my last day there, um, literally riding out of the sunset came a Mongolian horseman who I had seen around. And he, he pulled up right in front of me on this open step and he hopped off his horse and handed the reins to somebody. And right there in front of me broke down into a wrestler's stance. And we ended up, uh, we ended up wrestling really hard. Um, at first, you know, it was a couple of throws. And then, then he said to me through the translator, you know, best two out of three. And, and we hopped up again. And we ended up wrestling on into the night till we were both completely exhausted. And um, I was hurting. You know, I, I, there, was, there was blood on my head. And, um, but I think we would have done anything for each other at that moment. That that, that act of, uh, of competition, what we saw in that was an opportunity for us to show to ourselves what we had, the strength we had inside. And if you can treat competition in that way, then I feel like the competition itself can make you a better human being. And if you take, uh, if you take advantage of that, um, th- then I think competition can be an incredibly positive thing. But I think the key there was that um, the competition to me and to him was not zero sum. It wasn't that one of us would automatically win and the other one would automatically lose. Um, it was that we were both competing against ourselves and we both could help each other win. And and so um, maybe that's the idea, is that competition in itself isn't bad as long as it's not viewed as zero sum, that you can make each other better, um, but it takes a reframing of what competition means. So that's my current take on on how I feel about cooperation and competition. Much more with Emile Bruneau, along with other article and website links on this topic at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Our complete archive of shows going back to 2002 is there as well. It's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces this program separate and apart from your public radio station. It's called Good Radio Shows Incorporated. In addition to support from people like you, we also get support from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico and caring businesses like a spinal and movement center offered by Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Support also from KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.